0: Howdy, this is Mr. Banzai, and welcome to my Talking Music podcast. Back in the 80s and 90s, I conducted monthly magazine interviews with leading musicians, record producers, and audio engineers. Although the audio was not intended for broadcast at that time, today it is an engaging record of historic flavor, colorful and informal, a sonic time machine, if you will. Here are some highlights from my Talking Music podcast series. Keyboardist, composer, producer, and DOORS co-founder Ray Manzarek was a good friend of mine for decades and was always outspoken and true to the spirit of rock and roll. Here's a clip from our meeting at his home studio in 1997. Can you recall just one quick
1: ridiculous anecdote uh, in the studio? Uh, Well, not so ridiculous. Jim hosed down the studio after we had recorded Light My Fire. (laughs) He hadn't had enough. He came back, the studio was closed. I mean, we were just smoking and burning. And Jim came back to the recording studio You know, he just wanted more. And uh, I think he had ingested a certain hallucinogenic substance that was legal, even legal at the time, to wit LSD and came back to the studio, climbed the fence, snuck into the recording studio, walked in. And sure enough, the place was on fire. The red light. Now, the red light was on. You know, they're working that kind of work light. Uh, the, the whole place was closed. There wasn't a soul in the place. There was not a fire. But in Jim's hallucination, that red work light made the place look like it was on fire. Wow. And that- he saw flames. He went right to the hose. <laughs> he, took the hose. <laughs> he took the hose off the wall and turned the hose on it and hosed down the recording studio. Thank God it was out where the instruments were, not in the control room. He put the fire out. Left the hose, turned the water off, and went and left. That was it. In peace. In peace. He was. He had done his job. And they came in the morning and found that the ho- the, the recording studio was just soaking wet, <laughs> and they just started cleaning the studio up. Uh, called Paul Rothschild, our producer, and Bruce Botnick. Rothschild went down. Uh, um, And uh, the owner of the studio said to him, you know, this this studio was hosed down last night. And Rothschild said, I don't know anything about it. I don't know who could have done such a thing. And then the clue, he said, the owner of the studio said, oh, yeah, whose boot is this? (laughs) Jim had left behind a piece of telltale evidence, his boot. (laughs) So you can imagine how wild the guy must have been, man, just hosing that studio down, spraying the fire, stopping the fire, and and just so out of control, he lost his shoe. He lost a boot. How does a boot slip off your Uh (laughs) Anyway, Paul said, "Okay, okay, we'll pick up the expenses. Just call Electra Records. And um, they called Electra. Electra paid for it. It wasn't that much, so it was no big deal. And uh, about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, in Walk Morrison, nobody said a word. He didn't say a word. We didn't say anything to him. I think Rothschild said, gosh, I was a little accident here yesterday, uh, last night. And Jim said, oh, yeah, really, what happened? He said, well, I don't know, got all wet. He said, God, well, can we record? And Rothschild said, yeah, it's OK. Well, Jim said, well, let's go, man, let's record. And that was it. The studio? You remember the studio? Sunset Sound. I thought it might have been that. First record. album. Huh? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Phil Ramone got an early start in music as a three-year-old child prodigy violinist who entered Juilliard at 13 but goofed off with his jazz pals and started recording some new sounds at home. By the time he was 21, he was engineering for Burt Bacharach and Hal David, Quincy Jones, Lieber and Stoller, Neil Diamond, and Doc Pomus. Ramon became an engineer absolutely in control of his sound as well as a producer with the creative powers and simpatico to make the sessions push into peak performance. Here's a phoner with Mr. Ramon from
2: 1993. The the availability of the technology now is so superior to anything we've ever had. Um, Yet I will sometimes take an echo chamber and delay it with real tape because the delays are not quite as cold or warm as we would want it because certain things will happen into a chamber. An Mm -hmm. old EMT will do certain things. And I remember when EMTs came in, we were the first company to really be given a chance to do something for it. It was basically a failure in America in the early 60s. Mm -hmm. And I found by delaying it and working with tape machines into it and out of it, that was considered the coldest metallic sound ever heard on, on music. Mm -hmm. and that a live chamber was the only way to go. And if you went to 90% of the studios, if they didn't have a live chamber, people wouldn't record with you. Mm. So, uh, you know, not having any money and working in a very reasonably um, trying to fight the world studio, we hid one in the basement and told everybody we had a big room down there. (laughs) And uh, after two big hit records, everybody would say, can we have the big room down in the basement? Well, I'd have to call up and see if I can cook it.
0: The music of the Beach Boys is American mythology, an endless summer enjoyed around the world. The gifted hero of this saga is composer, producer, and vocal mastermind, Brian Wilson. Producer Don Was told me he's probably the most innovative musician in the history of rock and roll. After photographing Brian in session, I was invited to his home for this 1995 interview. You still believe in me? Any, uh, any? Uh,
3: yeah, that that was um, sort of like an experimentation with angel voice, you know, voice so angelic. Mm-hmm. We tried some of the angelic kind of things in Pet song and hey, I never thought of that angelic. That's <laughs> mm-hmm. great. Yeah, we tried that.
0: <laughs> and you did a, uh, quite a lot of the singing on this, record, Yeah, didn't I know. You?
3: That basically was my album, but. Mike did really good on his stuff too, That's Not Me, his voice was like really out there somewhere, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean he gets in there and he cuts, you know, he cuts right through, you know, really does. That's Not Me? Oh, That's Mike Love, yeah, I was just talking about that, it's really very, very special song I think, very, very special cut because it, it shows his positivity, you know, the way he shines through, his voice cuts through out the tape very, very powerfully and his uh his ability to take a song and nail it and make it happen is really up there. He's got a wonderful talent for that. Um, like anybody else, he's, just, he's like anybody else. When you get a piece of material that you, that, that's really made for you, you know, mm-hmm. you're know, you able to do it. You're able to do a job on that song. You say like, well, here you go, Mike. Here's the Hey, man, that's good. I like that. You know, he'll smile. Good, let's try it. He gets out there and he nails it. You know what I mean? So Mike Love is a nailer. <laughs> Nailer type guy. He nails it. He really does. California girls, man, he took to that like nothing, you know. It took him 20 minutes to do the whole song.
0: I was invited to join K.D. Lang at LA's Chateau Marmont in 1995 for a vegetarian repast in the hotel gardens. Without makeup, Miss Lang was radiant, striking, and playful. As they used to say, she's got gumption, an archaic colloquialism for initiative, energy, and good judgment.
4: My studio had an incredible view of downtown Vancouver, with the mountains and the ocean. And we left the doors open all the time and we listened at a really low level. We never got complaints, except when we tracked drums. (laughs) One One day, just
0: one day, we set up our
1: entire drum kit in the closet. (laughs) <laughs> in a closet in a, clo- a pretty small much drum kit in a in yeah. small drum kit we mm-hmm. used a, a scaled down junior Gretsch kit junior snare. and a baby snare <laughs> like a, a beginners
4: like child snare. snare
1: drum <clears throat> on most of the album
0: Really?
4: Really. Yeah. Yeah. You can hear, if you listen real carefully, you can hear the snare head actually drop in tone yeah, at some times because the, yeah, cause it Cause it was the this, head would stretch. Well,
1: the head was like right out of the box package and it's so thin mm-hmm. that you it was good for one or two takes. So we had to call around and find if we see if we could find the snare head that only exists on these, these children's, children's kits. Children's kits. <laughs> but you can hear the, the snare head drop yeah. as the end of the song goes.
0: Jeff Emmerich joined the staff at EMI in 1962, and first worked with the Beatles as second engineer under Norman Smith in 1963. On April 6, 1966, he began his work as first engineer. The song was tentatively titled, Mark One, eventually becoming Tomorrow Never Knows. I met with Mr. Emmerich in 1992 in the garden outside his home in the hills above Los Angeles. They were talking about the way you got Ringo's drum sound, uh, that you were miking closer than before, mm-hmm. that you stuffed the famous four-headed sw- sweater into the drum. Right, into the bass drum, right. And then the, uh, the used the Fairchild limiter. Yeah. Right. Well,
5: again, as I said to you when we started that, that um, discussion, and it was the fact that listening to earlier records prior to, I mean, let's, let's go prior Revolver. Mm-hmm. Because Revolver was really the album to change all sounds, in my opinion. That was better than Pepper, as regards not from an artistic point of view, but from a sound point of view. Mm -hmm. So as I said to you, I'd go down and listen to to, to Ringo's drums, and and listen, maybe put your ear close to the top skin, or put your ear to the bottom skin, and wonder, well, what's one doing? as regards resonance on the skin, so often we ended up taking the bottom skins off of the tom-toms, right? And putting the mic up inside the tom-tom, now this gives you the <coughs> slap of the top skin with no resonance of the bottom skin. Mm-hmm. Uh, occasionally... We this re- was a totally a, a new... New technique. Yeah. And at that time, or prior to that time, it was, we were talking about one overhead mic, one bass drum mic, and one snare mic, mm-hmm. because our recording mixers only had Eight inputs. So we wasn't enough feeds to go into the ball to do any more other than that. Mm-hmm. Until we got little premixes and all sorts of stuff going on.
0: The son of his Native American mother and his Jewish gambler father, Robbie Robertson, is an artist that lives well with his past and has a natural talent for revealing the evolving spirit of the individual in America. We met at his private recording studio in 1986.
4: I remember two things. I remember very, very young this uh, this uh, music that my mother was particularly interested in. And it was just out of the big band era and everything. But a part of it that she really liked, she liked Boogie Woogie. You know, it sounds silly, you know, but at one time it was like uh, outrageous pop music, I guess. Boogie, you know, and the feel of it. And I remember being, you know, one of my youngest things that it affected me in a way. Like it just caught my attention, the feel of it, much more so than other things. Then. My first experience, probably with instruments and thinking about a direct contact of music, was that her relatives, also Indians, you know, they all play something, you know. And when my uncles and cousins and things would come and visit, one guy played a mandolin, another guy played a guitar, you know, somebody always played something and could do something in music and kind of like a, a country music flavor country folk music i guess so i would see them firsthand playing and i liked you know i liked to watch it i want, when i saw it i thought i wanted to do, be able to do that too what's the trick so that affected me and then the next thing was i guess that rock and roll came along And it pushed another button, you know. With the combat, in the meantime, I had learned to play a little bit of guitar. And then, when just after that, when rock and roll became into existence, uh, it became like a fever then.
0: I had heard that Leonard Cohen liked cheap hangouts and junk food. On our way to his home back in 1989, Mrs. Bonsai and I stopped to pick up a jug of Chianti and some greasy wieners from Pink's famous chili dogs. Mr. Cohen greeted us at the door, barefoot in a three-piece suit, sporting a five o'clock shadow, and led us to his sunny kitchen nook, where he set out fine china and silver for our Hot dog lunch. Do you have a, a, a personal studio where you do like uh, you know, work up
6: your stuff? I feel that every studio can, um, in the same way that we're speaking about these these instruments. You know, I mean, there are some places, of course, that will be forbidding, for a number of points of view. But I think you can work in almost any studio under almost any conditions, and those become part of the. Agenda. You know that th- those are things that you merely take into consideration while you're doing it. Uh, there, there are people probably far more sensitive than I am that need very special kinds of environment uh, to to work in. But I find I can work almost everywhere with almost any kind of uh, any kind of instruments. You know. A lot of the tracks that I use on I'm Your Man, I I took them right off toy uh, keyboards. You know. They can, you know, they're supposed to be uh, sounds that are uh, really uh, unavailable to our deep appreciation, but I don't think that that's true. You know, I think that you can pass those sounds through conventional recording equipment and they can, they can come out quite solemn, quite uh, deep, quite uh, uh, touching. So I, I, I'm not. A, I'm not. Uh, uh, I, I love technology, but uh, in a very undiscriminating way. I think that uh, almost everything can be used uh, to make a possible recording.
0: This is Mr. Bonsai signing off for now. Many thanks to Dan Johnson, head of archiving at United Recording Studios in Hollywood, California for post-production and transfers of my old analog tape recordings into the digital domain. Music by Mark Mothersbaugh. Thanks for listening, and until next time, let's keep talking music.